a few housekeeping issues. We've disabled the chat box, but we do want to hear your questions. So please be sure and post them in the question and answer box. There's a Q&A icon. You can click on that. It will open a Q&A box. You can post your questions there. You may do so anonymously if you prefer, and we will try to address those as we go along um, as, as time allows. Uh, a lot of you have been calling already this morning about certificates. Uh, the certificates are going to be um, provided at a through a survey that you're going to get at the end of this presentation. And question number six allows you to download your certificate of attendance. So that's where you will be getting that from. So please uh, complete the survey and then you can download that link to print off your own certificate of attendance. We do sometimes have call-in only users. In other words, you don't, you're not logged into the program. You're not watching the slides. You're only listening. We know you're there, but we do not know who you are. And if you need to get credit for having attended today, you're going to need to contact the InSource office by the end of business day today by either emailing InSource at InSource.org or calling 800-332-4433. And I believe that information has been provided uh, to you um, in that reminder email that you received this morning. We do have recorded webinars on our website. This one has actually been done in the past. It's recorded there so you can view it or share it with other people. And again, if you have questions about certificates, please contact InSource at InSource.org. And please open that Q&A box. Okay. okay, my name is Kathy Boswell. I'm a regional program specialist for InSource. InSource is, of course, Indiana's resource center for families with special needs. May National Foster Care Month. So kudos to all of you foster parents and case managers and CASAs and everyone that works with our very, very vulnerable population of foster youth. We're so very happy that you are doing the work, the good work that you're doing, and we're glad that you were able to, to join us today. Um, I myself formerly was a foster parent for over 18 years. I was a CASA for over 10, and were adoptive parents as well. So I do have a little bit of experience in this area. And I was also a foster parent trainer for over 12 years. So as we get into our um, presentation today, I uh, just need to do this legal disclaimer. This is not intended to be legal advice. We are not a legal services agency. Parents always have the right to consult with, um, uh, with a competent attorney if they have legal questions. Again, please open that question and answer box, Q&A, if you have questions, and please post them there so that Jill and I can see them. Just a little bit about InSource. We're what's called a Parent Training and Information Center, or a PTI. We love our acronyms. Yes, we do. Uh, we were established way back in 1975, and we were awarded one of the first five federal grants to parent training and information centers back in 1976. 
Our current funding stream is through the Indiana Department of Education and through the United States Office of Special Education and, Rehab and the Rehabilitation Services Administration. A little bit about InSource and how we help families. We do have regional offices throughout the state. Every county has someone. Most of us have multiple counties. I do the south half of Lake County plus three other counties further south and, and east. Jill can describe her area um, further south uh, when, when she presents. And by the way, my co-host is Jill Summerlot. She'll introduce herself in a bit. Um, we, some of the ways that we assist families, we spend a lot of time talking on the phone, trying to answer questions, helping parents to understand the special education process. And you're definitely going to learn more about that today in just a little bit. We do training classes for parents, including webinars, some in-person trainings, got a lot of online trainings on our website, and all of those are free um, for folks here in Indiana to access. We do sometimes attend case conference meetings, so sometimes we can support parents at school. Please, if you have not done so, visit our website at insource.org. Got a lot of great resources, publications, that's where those online trainings are available, our archived webinars, you can go there and, and view them all, including a calendar of training events. So there's a great deal of information there, and I, I hope that you'll take advantage of, of that. We're, we're rather proud of that. And by the way, during COVID-19, we've also got a web, a web page dedicated to resources for families regarding education and health matters and just family, family support. So please, Please take the time to, to go visit that if you would. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get into our, our presentation. We, if you've done foster care for any length of time or have been involved with foster youth in any capacity, probably you've become aware of the fact that many youth with that are in foster care have also been diagnosed with some sort of special need or disability and very often there are multiple ones. And we know that foster youth are at risk, especially in regards to education. And so we're going to be looking at some of the, the factors that weigh in or contribute, if you will, to why that might happen. Well, Jill's going to then go over the process of special education and finish up with uh, ways that foster parents and others can in fact advocate for their foster youth. So it says here that more than half a million of kids are currently in foster care. Fact of the matter is we're usually a couple of years behind in accurate statistics. It takes that long to get it all put together. So perhaps a fairer thing to say would be more or less there are many kids in, in foster care. And studies have suggested that up to a third of those youth have, have some type of disability, some sort of special need. Um, I think anecdotal evidence probably says that that statistic is probably higher. And we know that, that, youth, that children with special needs are disproportionately represented in the foster care system. In other words, there's a lot more kids in the foster care system with disabilities or special needs than there are without. 
And I, I think I'm probably not saying anything most of you don't know anything about. Kathy, um, can I interrupt for a minute, please? Yes. We have a couple questions that are in our chat box that um, we probably should address um, pretty much right now, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, if both of you did both, if both of you registered to do this training, then you will, should both receive a certificate, but that's what's going to be looked at. Did you register? Because it's only, you know, both names have to show up separately um, for it. And so that, that might be an um, insource.org question or insource at insource.org question or call the main office to clarify. But again, it's, we try to stress, if you're going to be attending together, both parties have to register individually and hopefully we'll be able to work that out. Okay. Um, are video and audio turned off? No, they are not. Um, you need to check. I don't know if you can hear me, <laughs> um, but you may need to check your, your speaker on your, on your um, computer. As far as I know, everybody's hearing me. I know I'm hearing Jill and I think she's hearing me. So please check your computer, check your, your speakers because it is, um, it, we, are, we are live, we're unmuted and, and our video is showing. Um, you should have received a reminder email this morning that provided this link again to join. It also provided all of the handouts. People often don't scroll down far enough to see the handouts. So the, the handouts are with that, with the email, reminder email that you received this morning with the link to, to join us. So please go back and, and look for that because it, it, should, it should be there. If you didn't get that, then please contact insource at insource.org. Yes, some of you, if you both registered separately, and you're on the same computer, you know, you should be able to both get a certificate. But again, that may be a insource at insource.org question. Um, and if you both registered, you're both entitled to a certificate. So I will say that. No, you are, everyone is muted except for Jill and myself. Um, and we do that because otherwise we have uncontrollable background noise. <laughs> so everyone is muted. Um, well, you might have found us on Facebook, but you wouldn't have gotten the link to join. You would have gotten the link to register. And when you register, when you register for a webinar, you automatically get all the information that you need to join, but you don't get that until you join. Just, you know, you have to register. And then we send the reminder email the morning of the event in case people didn't save what they received when they first registered. Okay, all righty then. Okay, so you've had a chance to look at some of these statistics. Um, we know that there's a lot of changing of schools, or at least there used to be when you, kids would come into the system. Sometimes a foster parent was in another county. For whatever reason, it might have been decided that staying in the, the home school was not a good idea. We're really trying to limit that. And I think that um, working together between the Department of Education and um, 
the Department of Child Services have worked together to, you know, for there to be a plan and a determination of where a child who's newly coming into the system, what school they need to go to, to try to limit the number of, of school moves. But the reality of it is there are still school moves and doesn't always benefit the child perhaps quite as well as we might like. Um, there was a large, pretty much a third of the 17 to 18 year olds who experienced five or more school changes, really hoping that that number is getting cut down too. I sincerely hope so. And clearly the longer a child is in foster care, the more likely there are to be more changes, uh, more placements in other homes. But some of these older youth are twice as likely to be suspended from school and they're three times more likely to be expelled than other kids. And this information was found on the national fact sheet um, on the educational outcomes of children in foster care. And understand that these, this data takes a long time to collect, so very often it may be a couple of years old by the time we get it and, and talk about it, but that's what we have to go with. Okay. Um, the average reading level for 17 to 18 year olds is basically um, level for 44% or is seventh grade um, and 44% um, at high school level or higher. So there's a, a large percentage of older youth that do not have good reading skills. And that's not uncommon for any youth with, uh, with a disability, but it's very troubling for foster youth who may be leaving the system and trying to launch into adult life. We see that anywhere between 35 to 47% of kids in foster care are receiving special education services. 63% um, of kids in foster care um, are at least getting a, they're completing high school. Uh, via a diploma or a GED. And then 31 to 45% of youth in foster care who did graduate from high school that enroll in college at some level. So, you know, there is, there is good news there. There is good news. I'm not trying to say everything is bad, but we're going to spend some time looking at reasons why kids might be struggling. Kids in foster care and with disabilities. And again, this information comes from the, the national fact sheet on the educational outcomes for you for children in foster care. So there have been some educational policy changes in the past 15 years or so, um, which have been quite interesting. Um, the, in 2008, Fostering Connections to Success and Increasing Adoptions Act prioritized school stability. Remember I mentioned frequent moves. Frequent moves are not a foster child's friend very often. And ESSA, Every Student Succeeds Act, which was signed into law in 2015, also promotes school stability and success. And it also emphasizes the need for collaboration between the schools or Indiana Department of Education and uh, the Department of Child Services. And this will be a nice opportunity to share with you two weeks from today, the 19th, we've got Melaina Gant from DCS and Jeff Whitman from the Depart Indiana Department of Education, who will be presenting a webinar on this collaboration. It's very good information and I hope that you'll check back on our website to uh, see when registration uh, becomes available.
And then a, a third one was 2013 on Interrupted Scholars Act. And this one's really important because FERPA, which is a Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, uh, would forbid share, schools sharing information with anyone without the parent's consent. And sometimes parents who had their children removed were less than willing to share that information. And so DCS, the Department of Child Services, sometimes didn't have educational information on these kids, which meant in turn that foster parents sometimes didn't have ready access. Well, with this act, it amended FERPA to allow child welfare professionals to access those educational records without the biological parent's consent. So sharing that information has made it easier to plan educationally for, for these kids. So let's go on to the situation. Do we, do we have a problem? And so again, the statistics, depending on which year you're at, approximately 20,000 young people will age out of the foster care system um, in, in any given year. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but we know that they have a lot of, a lot of factors weighing against them. They may have little or no help from their biological family. The foster family may no longer be able to be there to be a support to them. They often don't have good community connections and often there's not a lot of financial support though there are things in place now that weren't in place 20 years ago to support these, these young people um, a little bit better. And this information came from uh, some research called, Are We Ignoring Foster Youth with Disabilities? So we've looked at some of the causes and effects um, on children with special needs, and now we're going to focus more on, on the outcomes for these kids. Okay, there was a project, and it was called Fostering There's Project, done in the early 2000s that showed some of the outcomes, most likely outcomes for youth that were both in foster care and were identified as special needs or having at least one identified disability. And the research showed these kids tended to have a lower grade point average. They changed, often changed schools more frequently Again, kids with disabilities have some unique needs even above and beyond the, the typical foster child, if there's a such thing as typical. They often earn fewer credits toward graduation. They just kind of tended to score lower in all of those measures of education that we look, that we look at. And they tended to be placed more in segregated classrooms and special education, though with our push for inclusion, we're trying to really get away from a lot of that. And they just, in general, had more instability in foster placements. Again, you know, having a child with a disability has its own unique stresses for biological families as well as for foster families. And it can, it can, create, it can create problems. So the fostering future study that I just referenced identified six, key factors that they, they believe are behind the lack of academic success for foster youth with special needs. 
And so we're going to spend some time looking at those uh, six key factors and discussing them briefly. Okay, please open your question and answer box. If you joined us later, you may not know that the chat box has been disabled. Please um, open your Q&A box. There's an icon somewhere on your screen. <laughs> You can post your questions there anonymously if you choose, and Jill and I will attempt to answer those as we can. So, okay. So, the first fact, key factor was that special education needs of foster youth are often overlooked. I believe we're doing a far, far better job than we were 20 years ago. I think this has really become much more prominent, um, hence some of those law changes, federal law changes recognizing that you know if we're going to have if we're responsible for these children we need to be fully responsible for their education as well so when we say education is not often emphasized in the child welfare system that's not entirely true it's always you know certainly it's a priority but what's generally first and foremost a priority is safety and so getting that child to a, a safe place to live and then there was that problem with that timely exchange of educational information between schools and case managers, the people that need that information to share. And of course, I mentioned that the Uninterrupted Scholars Act did amend the FERPA law to allow for that exchange of information, which has made that relationship much better, that flow of information is much better, and it puts um, case managers and foster parents um, in a better position to understand more fully how a child is doing academically at school, how they're functioning better at school, and just getting that broader picture, which is so, so important if we're going to advocate. If we're going to advocate for kids, we need to know what their needs are. Okay, the second key factor is that foster kids in care are less likely to receive services. It was pretty disturbing when I read through, um, read through this study, talked about they followed um, on the West Coast several foster youth that actually had services written into their individualized education plan, which is what a qualifying student would get if they have a disability. And so even though services were often written into the plan, they discovered that those services sometimes were not being provided. In fact, often were not being provided. And that certainly can happen with any population of youth, but um, it was just something to think about. And so hence the need to advocate, to be involved, to see what's going on, to see what's written in the plan, like any good parent would do, we need to be aware of what those services are for our foster youth. And so we know multiple placements do re can re result in records not following quickly. <laughs> um, because if you're moving the child from one school to another, the sending school, the former school, has to send the school records to the receiving school so that the receiving school then knows what that IEP says, if in fact they have an IEP or a 504 plan, and then try to get that implemented. And so with any, you know, any kind of delay that you have, delays potentially um, the, the provision of services to these kids, and these kids need help. 
um, children that have often have behavioral and emotional learning needs are more likely to have multiple placements. And we know that, again, children with psychiatric needs um, can be very, very challenging for anyone. And unfortunately, they sometimes result in asking to have kids moved on to another home or another placement of some sort. And so again, there's that potential for a falling way of services to, to a certain degree. And then of course, that instability in placement does have a negative impact on educational performance. I believe I recall reading um, in some, re some report that it's estimated that every time a child changes placement, they could lose up to six months of, of academic growth. Not saying all children do, but again, it's another trauma, it's another loss. And so another reason to be very careful about placements, and, and I know things happen and sometimes things just have to be, but please understand, we don't want these kids falling any further behind than they potentially might be right now. Okay, all right. I've got Kelly, she's been a consultant for the last eight years. Yes, and you are right, Kelly, the collaboration between schools and DCS have improved dramatically. And I'm so happy that um, Elena Gant and Jeff Whitman from DOE, they have, they're working so well collaboratively um, because ESSA requires that every student succeeds act, but they've done a, done a fabulous job of pulling this together and the picture is much, much better than it was eight, 10, 12, 20 years ago. It is in fact much better. And so um, these new laws that have been passed have improved that communication. And now every Student Succeeds Act basically mandates, you know, we, the schools and DCS have to work together. And I believe that is improving outcomes dramatically. Um, and yes, trying to make their, when a child is first moved uh, from their biological home, a determination is made whether or not that child remains in their current school or if they need to move to a different school, perhaps wherever the foster parents might uh, live. And, and a great deal of thought goes into that. These aren't moves that are made lightly because moving from your home school that you've gone to for however many years, you know, that's another loss for these kids. And so they do take it very, very seriously. But even, you know, however that gets considered, once the child is placed in a foster home, things may or may not work out. And it could in fact lead to another placement, may not result in a change of school. But so just keeping that in mind. And so she states, it's important for foster parents to know that they should not withdraw a child from the school where they are attending until the collaboration is completed. And that, that's a great point. And I'm hope, I believe Melena and Jeff will talk about that on the 19th. Um, foster parents don't quite do the things now that, they, that we used to do. And so, you know, getting that guidance and following the protocol, hopefully the, the family case manager is aware that, you know, there's that um, point of contact at the school and, and DCS is, being uh, is making making that connection to the school through that point of contact and making those arrangements whatever that might look like whatever that placement might be for that school so 
I guess, Kelly, would it be fair to say that foster parents should wait and take direction from the family case manager? And please feel free to uh, post in the uh, question and answer box. But my understanding is, yeah, foster parents should probably be waiting for, yes, she says, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, okay, great. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate the, in the, the input very much. Okay. All right, so let's move on. We also know that kids in, in care face social isolation, and it's kind of a, a double whammy for kids in foster care that also have disabilities. A lot of us are parents of kids that have their own special needs, and we're very familiar with kids not wanting to feel different. They don't want to go to this resource room or special classroom because they know that that means there's something wrong with them or they believe that that means there's something wrong with them. Kids are very, very aware of that. And, and these are just kids that are not even in foster care but have disabilities. But then when you add on to that, the fact that being in foster care is not something that most children are happy about. Many are very embarrassed. They don't want to share that information. So they may not be reaching out to make friends for fear of the questions that may be asked of them. And or they may have had a few placements. This may be a second or third placement. And they've made friends initially and lost them when they moved. And then they made a few more and lost them when they moved. And now here we are again, they're not willing to reach out to anybody for fear of it being yet another loss. And so that's very isolating as well. And it's, it's very, very sad. I don't know what the answer to that is, but we just need to be aware that we need to support these kids in every way that we can. Foster parents and CASAs, and, and their case managers. Um, how do you normalize the experience of being in foster care and having a disability? I, I don't know that you can do that easily except try to build their self-esteem and support them in every, in every way that you can. And especially when kids are new to your home or to, to a placement, they may not have that. It's gonna take a while to build a supportive relationship with the new family. Um, and everybody can be new, Every, everything is different, and, but we need to work hard to, to be supportive and to build those relationships, again, as foster parents, as CASAs, as case managers at DCS, everything that we can do to support them in feeling good about themselves despite what's happened. Okay, another key issue is lack of educational advocates. I had mentioned earlier that I was a foster and an adoptive parent trainer for over 12 years. And of course, I knew then more about special education because by that time, some of my own children had some unique needs. And I knew about InSource and I did their parent support or their, their volunteer training, which helped me to understand more about the law. And so when I would talk to foster parents and training and hear about some of the things that were happening at school, you know, I, I really felt compelled to start, you know, providing more information about this is what needs to be happening at school. You need to be able to advocate for, for these kids in your home, but in order to advocate, you have to know something. And so just trying to make an effort to 
get that information out about the process. These are some of the basics that you need to know about getting kids evaluated or, you know, following the IEP or, I mean, there's just so many, so many pieces to that puzzle. And so that's why we've kind of combined, here are some of the problems that these kids can face, some more so than others. And then the other part that Jill's going to uh, talk about is that overview of the special education process that will hopefully give you some tools so that you can more knowledgeably advocate for the kids in your home or as CASAs to more knowledgeably advocate or case managers as well. So we do know that foster parents fit the def in the definition of parent in Article 7, which is Indiana's special education rules. Typically what we'll see is some combination at, at the case conference meetings, bio parents might be there, foster parents might be there, uh, hopefully the case manager is there or the educational liaison. I don't know if you're all aware, but uh, every county has an educational liaison that's available to assist with youth in foster care that have disabilities. And they, as I understand, can sometimes attend case conferences and can support the family and the child that way. So we, we do have educational liaisons, which is, which is really great. But ultimately foster parents, you will be the ones that are doing homework every night with this child. You will be the one that's going to be watching, hopefully, to be sure that the, um, the individualized education plan or program for this child is being followed. You'll be the one you know, checking progress toward goals, making sure they're doing what they need to do, that they're making adequate pro progress, and then being willing to speak up if you're concerned about something. But that takes, again, a little bit of basic knowledge about the process. And again, your educational liaisons know all of this and, and then some, and can be a really great support to you if you've got questions or concerns or feel like you need to have them there at the at the meeting because you're concerned that perhaps the school won't assist you the way that you think the child should be assisted. So just something to think about. And again, you know, sometimes foster parents haven't been able to advocate because they don't have that basic knowledge, but we're, we want you to get that. We want you to get that knowledge and this webinar is just the beginning. We've got lots of training resources on our website and you know you can learn as much or as little as you want. And then um, and of course that lack of knowledge can negatively impact services because as I said in working with other foster parents they didn't know what to do when they were told no. They didn't know what to do when they said we're not going to evaluate or we evaluated and he doesn't qualify. They didn't know anything about Section 504 plans. And so again, having that knowledge will help you to perhaps take things in a different direction, all with a view to improving educational outcomes for your child. Sometimes there's a lack of coordination in, in transition planning between schools and DCS. Back Way back when, <laughs> um, my teenagers, accessed transition or independent litter to be transition services at the age of 14. That has since changed. And Kelly, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's 16 or 17 now before um, DCS starts looking at a transition to adult life plan, independent living uh, for youth in care that are looking to transition out of the foster care system. But a lot of people aren't aware that if 
this child is in, you know, when they're younger and they have an IEP, we schools start writing transition plans when kids turn go into ninth grade or 14 or earlier. And so we can start working on transition to adult life plans, which can include independent living. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could just kind of roll all that together and start working on some of those independent living pieces um, at the same time or through the school? And then that can certainly perhaps augment what, you, what ends up happening at 16 or 17. Oh, it's okay. Okay, Kelly says it's correct, okay. So, and then I've got somebody that says, no, it starts at 14, they're a family case manager. Okay, well, it does start at 14 um, in schools or younger, but I was under the impression that for independent living for youth in foster care, that independent living piece didn't kick in until 16 or 17. Kelly, can I get you to weigh in again, please? Just to be sure I don't want to give inaccurate information. Okay. It's updated every six months. Dependent living in foster care does start at 16. Okay, okay, great. Okay, so I wasn't, wasn't wrong. Um, but wouldn't it be wonderful? Let's, you know, when you're having that transition IEP meeting in eighth grade or ninth grade, and knowing that there's a good chance this young person may end up transitioning out of foster care, maybe not going back home, and we look at what his needs might be and is there a way that we can get some of that written into the school transition plan? I, I don't know for sure, but I think it would be the best of both worlds and getting it started sooner, hopefully will maybe ensure or make more likely uh, the likelihood that the child's going to achieve or learn what we want them to learn. You know, most of us did not launch our children, our biological children at 18, because they were not ready to launch at 18. They may have gone away to college and eventually pulled that together. But for some of these youth, they may in fact be aging out of the system. And again, a lot of things have changed. There are ways that kids can stay connected um, with some support from DCS, but every child's different. Some kids don't want anything to do with it. And we want to give them all the skills that they have. Okay. So uh, youth in foster care can have their permanency plan changed to emancipation as a part of the of APLA at 16 and a half or 17. They can have an independent living worker start on their case at 16 if they're in a foster home. Okay. If they're in a therapeutic foster home or institution, they can have an independent living worker at 17 and a half. Well, thank you for those statistics. Boy, things change a lot, <laughs> it seems like, and certainly in the quite some time since my boys were, um, were at that point. But so, and foster parents, I hope you know all of that, especially if you have teenagers. If you don't, make sure you're having conversations with your case managers. It's nice to know, and certainly as foster parents, we can do a lot of independent living teaching on our, on our own basic skills, but okay. So thank you all for the input. This is, this is great information. And then the last key point that was identified is that sometimes the reasons for poor performance are different from their non-foster youth peers. 
So interventions may need to be different. We've got a lot of truly fabulous teachers out there that just have this wonderful bag of tricks or tools, if you will, for teaching kids and helping them to, you know, get over the hump and being creative. And sometimes they're just stumped and perplexed because sometimes some of our foster youth don't respond perhaps the way others would, but sometimes the reasons are different and for that, for them being at that point. And I think it is so interesting, so wonderful, no, so fabulous that we have a better understanding of how abuse and neglect impact kids. Um, way back when, when I was advocating for my kids, I saw it at home every day, how abuse and neglect had impacted their development, their maturity level. I mean, so many, across so many domains, but trying to share that with schools, I, you know, everybody was sympathetic, but I'm not really sure they bought into it. Well, we're all buying into it now, aren't we? With ACEs, we all know about adverse uh, childhood experiences. And, you know, we're, we're getting all over that. We've got a much better understanding that early trauma, you know, creates a lot of huge problems for kids, even into adulthood. And that acknowledgement and teachers are so much more aware of it. And it's just wonderful because I feel like for the first time, we're really all on the same page and everybody understands what foster parents understood a long time ago. These kids have some pretty unique needs. So, and so uh, teachers may need some specific strategies. What those might be, I don't know. And of course we want foster, uh, um, we want our case, um, family case managers or foster care fa family case managers to be aware of the disability laws, how disabilities can impact kids educationally, and, and again, I, I think that has improved a lot in the past several years. Okay, where can I get what info? I've got a question, where can I get that info? I, if you're talking about the independent living comments that we were just talking about, uh, please contact your family case manager, whoever that might be, or agency person. If you're in a private agency, they would be able to share the independent living pieces um, and when that starts and what that might look like depending on the placement of the child. Um, and I have a comment as a special needs parent and a family case manager. I agree that a family case managers need more training about special needs. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And we are the go-to people. We're more than happy to, to share that. And I, I have to tell you in years past, I, I, I advocated for please, let me come into schools and talk to teachers. Let me come into schools and talk to teachers about, you know, we need to have some sort of in-service for teachers about foster and adoptive youth and some of the issues, but I know there's lots of things that need to happen at those in-services, but now I feel like we're maybe more on the same page with that understanding that these aren't just kids that, oh gee, that's too bad, they're living with somebody else. Now we, we've got a much better understanding of how deeply abuse and neglect and impact a child's development and, and education. Okay. All right. Let's see. Oops. Sorry. Um, okay. So, any more questions at this point? We're about to make that transition from um, 
talking about some of the unique needs, some of the key issues that impact why foster youth might not perform as well at school. Uh, we've made the point that I believe things have improved. I believe we are definitely working together now much better than we used to. And I think outcomes ha definitely have that potential uh, to, to improve. But part of advocacy is not just knowing why kids might be struggling, youth in foster care that have disabilities, but also understanding a little bit about the, um, the special education process, because you need to know you get a child in your home and you're concerned that, you know, he doesn't have an IEP, doesn't have a 504 plan, but you're feeling pretty confident there might be a disability at play. How do you go about getting an evaluation through the school done? And so this is something that Jill's going to be talking about here in, in just a, a couple of minutes. So I'm going to kind of set us, set us up, start us off, <laughs> and hopefully we won't set us off, um, about just what is special education. So special ed education is a very broad term that describes what's called specially designed instruction, or SDI. We, again, love our acronyms. Specially designed instructions that meets the unique needs of a child who has special education, uh, who, or is in special education, so that that student can benefit from their education. So we know that disabilities impact the ability of kids to learn, and, and it does. And when the evaluation is done and it's shown that that is in fact what's happening, then we write what's typically called that IEP for that student. But we also need to be looking at specially designed instruction. If this child benefited just fine from general education instruction, then chances are he doesn't need special education. But it's been determined that this child needs some special additional help because they have some unique needs. These services are going to be provided through your public school system and they're free of charge. Uh, these services can Im certainly include instruction in the classroom. It can in include instruction at home if need be. It could be even occur in hospitals and in institutions, but they are entitled to a free appropriate public education if they are found, found to qualify. Okay, so I'm going to hand this over to, to Jill. And as we're making that switch over, Jill, are you able to make the switch over? I am getting okay. right there. <laughs> okay. Um, I, it's telling me that I can't share my screen because you're sharing your screen, so. Okay, I will stop my sharing. Perfect. We used to be able to do that, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, um, um, I haven't been given permission for my um, um, video either. So, hang on. Oh, well, that's it. No, I'm, you're sharing your screen. You're good. Okay. Well, I just want to welcome everyone today. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Um, it is. Um, I, I've never been a foster parent, so I don't, I'm not in the same boat. Um, I am a parent of a child with a disability, so that's, um, I, can, I can relate to a little bit more. Um, 
anyway, um, I am Jill Summerlot, and my area is in Putnam County is where I currently live, and I have Boone County, Putnam County, and Hendricks County. So let's just go ahead and jump on in here, and who is the parent? So Article 7 has a very um, um, uh, definite def definition of this. It can be a biological parent, it can be an adoptive parent, um, it can be a guardian, including a court, a court appointed a temporary garden, it can be a foster parent, um, somebody that has legal custody, that could be a grandparent or a relative, um, another adult who accepts those legal responsibilities for that student, that child with whom they live. It could also be an educational surrogate parent. Um, this is an adult that's trained to understand the special education process. It can be a volunteer assigned by the school or the court. Um, it can also be somebody that's uh, represented as an um, educational needs for the student that's receiving services. And is a student, if a student has a CHINS, um, is status or is a ward of the state. So um, that educational surrogate parent can be also assigned to them if their parents' uh, rights have been uh, restricted by the court. Any student that is 18 years of age that does not have a guardian appointed to them is considered to also being the parent um, for this. It's really important for us to remember though that parent involvement is one of the six principles of IDEA. Um, so it's very important that we do remember that. And the parent is very involved um, no matter what um, parent they may be, an adoptive parent, biological, court-appointed, foster, that parent is very involved with um, special education. <coughs> Excuse me. Procedural safeguards. Um, these are a set of rules and procedures um, that do define and protect students and parents' rights at schools. Um, and that is one principle of IDEA, that Individuals Disability Education Act. Um, and um, navigating the course is a companion copy to Article 7. And um, I encourage you to um, download a copy of that. We have that on our website. You can get that on um, insource.org or you can get it on um, the Department of Education's website. But please, that navigating the course is a companion to that Article 7 and it really is does help to kind of um, explain a little bit more um, and, it, and it's kind of nice to have just like a reference copy. But um, you are to be fully informed as a parent, that's part of your, your safeguards. You as a parent can participate in special education process. You have the right to receive those prior notices and um, also to provide consent. Um, for that um, evaluations for any of those things and to be um, identified um, as that student's parent um, and to receive that information. You have the right to, re to examine all of those relevant records and um, you also have the right to that dispute resolution. So at least one time per year, um, usually it's the annual case conference, um, you can um, attend a case conference. Um, you can absolutely at any time request their case conference, um, but at least one time a year you should be meeting. Um, 
first-time parent request a student referred for an evaluation, you must give consent um, in order for that, that uh, process to happen. Um, if you file a complaint um, at, the, at the school level, um, you have a year to file that complaint. If for some reason that you would decide that you would need some um, um, resolution to just some disputes, um, you can file for a hearing. Um, if you want to also uh, do go to due process for that dispute resolution, um, you also have the right to um, look at any of those uh, records if there was a move for to an inter interim alternative education setting, or if you um, just want to um, uh, look at any of those records, you have the right to do that. So as you see in front of you, um, we're going to, the wheel that's up there is going to take us on a brief look at the special education in Indiana. And the chart really does give us an overview of this. Special education is a very um, specific process and there are very specific timelines that we need to be um, watching for. And so Article 7, which is our Indiana uh, special education laws, uh, provide those um, um, out, they outline those in there very specific. Um, so one of the things that um, parents may become frustrated with is when they talk about their child is going to be educated, um, they want to talk about placement, um, but really whenever we talk about placement, we need to make sure that we have the eligibility category discussed first, then we need to be developing that IEP. So there's a very definite way that we have to discuss things in the confines of that special education case conference as well. So let's jump into referral for evaluation. Um, you as a parent have the absolute right to request a evaluation. You need to, um, I always ask my parents to please put it into writing, put a date on it, make sure it's written request, um, I, I ask you to keep a copy for yourself, also to give a school a copy, obviously. Um, if you're giving it to a secretary, I always ask them if they can timestamp it um, and give you a, cop a copy with that time stamped on it so you know what date and time and the school knows what date and time that was turned in. Um, you do, the school has 10 days, those instructional days, and instructional days are considered any day that the school is open and the children are in the seats. Now, with the situation that we're in right now, we know that um, our uh, situation is we're doing e-learning and e-learning, anytime there's a day of e-learning, that is the day the school is uh, considered to be an instructional day. So you have 10 instructional days to give um, the parent that written notice to decision on whether or not they're going to move forward with the evaluation or they deem that they um, don't find it necessary. Um, if for some reason that the school does say that, um, um, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead too. Um, it would be a written notice that they would give you if they would, um, whether or not they were going to give the, uh, um, evaluation or not conduct the evaluation. So there will always be something in writing and it would be that like written in information. Um, um, they also have uh, 
if this is a, a case of that they do not want to move forward with an evaluation, you as a parent, you have the right to request mediation. That is, and, and we'll talk about mediation a little bit further on, but um, that is one of your rights. It is, um, uh, it sounds, make it sound so simple, but it, you know, it can be um, one of those time consuming things, but um, you have the right for that. Um, the school does need a consent if they are going to evaluate that student. So if for some reason, maybe the school came to you as the parent and said, you know, we really feel that um, there is an areas of some needs and we would like to evaluate, then they would absolutely need your consent to do that. So when we talk about that educational evaluation, what is to be considered? A multidisciplinary team conducts the evaluation. Um, this is a team of, of a variety of professionals that are employed by the school. And it really depends upon what area it could be that um, suggested or subjected area that needs to be uh, looked at and that suspected disability. Absolutely more than one test can be administered um, using a variety of evaluation tools um, and that has to be tools that are non-discriminatory. Um, they must be valid and reliable. They have to accurately measure the area that are designed to evaluate. The evaluation is to measure the student's abilities and capabilities, just not their needs. Um, the student is assessed in all areas related to that suspected disability. And again, we'll go over some of those, those areas of disability, but if you have a child that maybe has a, um, uh, um, um, a, spe a, spe a specific learning disability, maybe in English or in math, then those areas would be the ones that they would be specifically looking for. But it would not be just because of the abilities and capabilities and not just the needs. Um, the, um, the assessments are tailored to help determine the specific areas of educational need. And it's just not that IQ or that intelligence test. Medical information needs to be made available. Um, and the, a lot of that is, um, Generally, whenever we talk about the medical information, it would come straight from the parent who, you know, if this was talking about a biological child, they would have that information. If it's not available, then those things, um, you would have to either talk to maybe um, a, the, the case manager or somebody maybe that have, would have a little bit more in-depth information about that information on that child. Um, the school does not always find the student eligible in the same category um, as the medical diagnosis. And um, we need to make sure that we understand there is a difference between a medical diagnosis and what the schools do find, um, because there is a difference between the medical needs and the educational needs. So the eligible student is, we want to talk about whenever we talk about an eligible student that the disability must adversely affect that educational performance. So the student must qualify for special education and the evaluation has to determine if the student is or is not eligible. And the evaluation results that there has to be a link between the disability and the poor student performance. So the school has to consider functional performance, not just academically academic achievement. 
And functional performance generally refers to skills or activities of everyday living. Um, it's possible that the student with the disability could have little or no impact on any of those performances. Um, if the student is has a mild to moderate hearing impairment, for example, and wears hearing aids and learns at the rate appropriate for their potential as shown in the evaluation results. So that would be where it doesn't, at, at, that it does not maybe academically have that adverse effect. Um, so just having a disability doesn't mean a student automatically qualifies. It has to have a consistent and significant impact on their education. Here are those 13 areas of category of disability. Um, there is, um, I, I want to point out, and I'm sure this is old news to everybody, but developmental delay is now up to the age of nine. Um, so it's between those years of three and nine. And so that's been something that was just done um, in the, within the last couple of years. So you still can have that developmental delay and be um, eight years old. So it's one of those things that really was um, a kind of a, a, a breath of fresh air that we could use that developmental delay because we know that kids, you know, they don't develop the same as everybody else. Um, whenever we look at these areas of category of disability, for example, like intellectual disability, this replaced the previous term of cognitive disability. So the intellect define the faculty or reasoning and understanding objectively, especially with regards to abstract or academic matters. Um, so categories do not define what services a, a child will also receive. Um, Article 7 provides a definition for each one of these categories. But as you see on the screen, there is, you know, there is a plethora here of areas that a child could absolutely fall under into those categories. Um, and I just want to point out that if you do have a copy of Article 7, that um, if you want to look it up, those categories are 511 IAC 7-411 through 13. That would be your Indiana code for looking up those categories in Article 7. So who decides eligibility? One of the case conference committee's duties is to decide eligibility. Um, just like other case conference committee decisions, the meeting's not controlled by majority rule. Um, the case conference committee decision is left up to the parent and the public agency representative. Um, and if there's a disagreement, there's always protections in place to use those procedures um, and those procedural safeguards if you disagree. If the student is found eligible, the case conference committee will develop an IEP, that individualized educational program. And this might happen at the case conference committee meeting, or it may, there may be a need to reconvene. It just depends upon what the situation is with that case conference. If the student is not found eligible, um, there are several things that can happen. They can consider whether additional information is needed and they could reconvene. Um, they may decide that there is a 504 that would um, fit that child better, or they could consider whether any other options might be available to help the student. Um, there could be some research-based interventions for the student, for example. A parent can request an independent educational evaluation 
um, if they do agree, disagree with the school. Um, and you do have a handout that does talk a little bit more about that. Or you could request mediation um, or due process. And mediation and due process, um, we can discuss later on. Um, and it's kind of a little bit more in depth. So the notice of the case conference committee meeting must be scheduled at a mutually agreed upon time and place. The parent has to give a notice of the case conference meeting early if they choose to um, have one or both parents have the opportunity to attend. If not, please let the school know so that you can reschedule it. Um, it, it for some reason, you know, you have it on the schedule already, but something does come up, please let the school know as soon as possible that you cannot make that meeting. Um, the parent has the, uh, will be given the notice in their native language or their primary mode of communication. The case conference committee, um, um, this, this is different than a written notice of a proposed action which the school must give when a proposal is made by a member of the case conference committee. The notice of the case conference committee meeting is more like an invitation. So you'll get an invitation to what that uh, case conference committee meeting. And that's where it will tell you the time and the place and the date. Um, in addition to the details about when the meeting will take place, the notice must also explain the purpose of the meeting, um, whether it's an annual case review, is this a transition meeting, is this a, um, um, a reevaluation, is this a revision? but it has to also include the names and titles of the public agency representatives, um, as, whether, as well as others that will be there um, at the meeting. Um, although it's best for parents to attend in person, you absolutely can, um, if you are unable to attend, you can do this by phone. Um, now we're doing Zoom. Um, I have one later on today that I'm gonna be doing it uh, this afternoon. It's in the Zoom, in the Google Hangouts. Um, we have one here that says, I'm sorry I have to leave early for an appointment. I'm hoping I'll be able to watch the rest of the meeting at a later time. Thank you for your info. No problem, Mindy, please. Yes, go on our on our website and you'll be able to, um, that we already have one of the, um, uh, wow, I just lost my train of thought. We have one of these already that are pre-recorded on our website. Um, the written notice that you would be receiving regarding your student's initial case conference meeting, um, and this is whether, if this was an initial when they were deciding if the student was eligible, there is an extra requirement. It must be provided to a parent at least five days prior to the case conference committee meeting. That would be your, um, your notice. And it, it must describe and give findings of the evaluation, procedure, assessment, or record, record school used as a basis for any proposed actions. It also has to include a description of what action that may be proposed by the school and why the public agency may, may be proposing that action. The responsibilities of the case conference committee, it's the primary duty is to decide eligibility and to develop the IEP, that individualized educational plan. And if you remember the six principles of IDEA, um, that's FAPE, that free appropriate public education, appropriate evaluation, IEP, that individualized educational plan, that LRE, which is that least restrictive environment, the parent and student participation and procedural safeguards. This is the majority of these six principles of, 
principles come into play whenever we talk about the responsibilities of the case conference committee. The key purpose of IDEA and special education is to make sure that we promote an improved in educational results for students with special needs um, so that we can prepare them for a later educational challenges and, and employment. So we know that the case conference committee should carry out their responsibilities. Um, they, they really need to make sure that they're focusing and developing on that IEP that provides that instruction and experiences for that student. What we're making sure that's done is we're making sure that we're leveling that playing field um, for that child. So what is an IEP? What is that individualized educational program? It is going to, the IEP is what guides the delivery of special education supports and services. Um, these, the, the, the most important thing in an IEP has to contain, if the parent doesn't understand any of these things when they're discussed in the case conference committee meeting, then uh, we would really ask them to please, please, you know, ask those questions um, until they are understood. And, you know, one of the things that whenever I attend case conferences with parents, I always say, you know, look, if you don't understand anything or something, please either stop the meeting and we can discuss it then, we can go out to the hallway, but let's make sure that you have, you have a very full understanding of what's being written into this document. This document, this IEP, is um, going to have those per, uh, present levels of performance, and this will show the student's academic performance as well as those functional performances those routine activities of daily living. Um, the goals should be those smart, go, smart goals with specific, measurable. Um, we need to be using action words, realistic and relevant and be time limited. So those, we need to make sure that we have some very good goals that are written into there for that student. We need to make sure that we are saying how the progress is going to be measured and how those parents will be informed of that progress. So how are you going to be informed on how they're doing? It needs to also have the um, least restrictive environment, how they're going to be educated with those typical peers. Are they gonna be in the general education class with the same age peers as much as possible? Um, this is uh, what they call that inclusion. Um, are they going to be, um, are there going to be some specific, specific requirements um, that they're going to have to follow? Um, there are some special requirements that for children that are approaching the age of 18 because students become their own guardian at age 18. We need to keep that into mind. And we have to remember that schools often um, don't include those comprehensive written notes. So ask to review the notes when you're finalizing the IEP. And I always try and make sure that we are kind of going over those notes because a lot of times that's where um, I'll, I'll get back in the parent call and say, you know, I don't, I don't see where they've captured something at. So we'll always go back to those notes and see if it's captured there. And if not, then we need to, uh, we really need to revisit it because it, it was something that the parent really felt strongly about. Um, any case conference committee member can submit a written opinion about the proposed IEP. Um, it has to be within 10 business days after that meeting. And that written opinion can provide ways to document issues or concerns or 
any future references, um, any of those proposed services, maybe some gaps or omissions, um, or even suggestions for improvements. So you do have a right to that written opinion, um, but it has to be done within that 10 business days. So a continuum of services, and the schools are required to make sure that there is the availability of that continuum of services. And the IEP has to document um, that case conference committee's decision on that and what those options might be. And it has to be in those uh, written into the written into the IEP. So the IEP has to document the case conference committee decision on what the least restrictive environment is and um, where that child will be at. Will um, it be in a separated classroom um, only if the nature or severity of disability requires to a student to be separated from their peers in order to show that progress. Um, placement and services can look very different from student to student. Um, we know that uh, not every IEP is going to be the same. Um, the students, where they are going to spend most of their time, is it going to be in that general education classroom with their peers? Um, they, a lot of times, don't even know that um, they're, the only person that knows about the IEP is probably the student. If they, if you know, they've been involved in that any of that um, case conference committee part, portion of it, if their parents have told them, teachers will know because they have a copy of. Um, they call it a um, IEP at a glance now, um, and so you wouldn't even know the students in the classroom that have IEPs and that don't have IEPs. So, and their IEPs all look very different. Um, students can meet, their needs can be met differently because everything is flexible um, in that IEP. Up on the screen, you do see there is a wide range of those services, whether it be in that general education classroom. Is it a mixture of some of the, of the things? Is it a mixture of gen ed and the resource room? Is it something that we're talking about that we have a student that's in a more restricted environment in that residential or that homebound or those hospital settings? You know, these, these are just different areas that it could be at that continuum of services. So that continuum of services, they still have to be meeting the goals in their IEP. They have to be moving forward with that. Um, it just depends upon what the situation is and every situation is different. Um, but just remember that the school has to offer some sort of continuum of services. But it may not always be what's up here on the screen. You know, some schools don't even have resource rooms. Some schools don't have separate classrooms. Um, you know, we, we have using models of push-in right now um, in, in, in a lot of the schools that I'm in. Um, so, I mean, it just really depends upon the area that you're in and what your school has to offer. Now looking at, you know, we're doing so much, you know, Google Hangouts and Zoom. So, you know, what does that look like for them? Because, you know, that's everybody across the board here. Um, so it's, it's really different for every child and that has to be remembered. So resolving those disputes between schools and parents. Parents, you have the right to meet with the staff um, to try and resolve those disputes. 
I will tell you that as um, if I get the phone call and there's a parent that's having some issues, I always try and ask them to resolve it at the lowest level possible and to, you know, let's, let's try and get back to a case conference if we can. Um, or, you know, we, we've even met with the special education director to try and work some things out. You have a right for that to ask for what they call a facilitated IEP meeting. And um, for those of you that may not know what that is, that involves parents and schools agreeing to request a facilitator to um, bring some structure to the case conference committee, um, trying to resolve some of those disagreements. This, is, um, this step is not required in Article 7. Now, our Indiana Department of Education offers this as an option that's available um, to the parents and schools. And in order to request this, um, you can discuss this with um, your school or your, your special education director because there is a form that they can download on the Indiana IEP. But it is a, one of those uh, additional steps that we can ask for. Um, the parent may ask for mediation uh, or the parent may have to ask for a due process hearing. You know, again, it just depends upon the situation. If we're talking about mediation, this is more formal, it's confidential, it's voluntary. Um, there is an impartial mediator that will be um, assigned to the case from the Department of Education. Um, this person is not a stakeholder. They are not there to um, express their views or give opinions or make any decisions at all. This is completely between the school and the parent trying to come to a, an agreement. Their role is just to get both sides talking. And if they can come to an agreement, then that, that's, that's best, you know. Um, it is, a, there is a document that would be signed and it would become legally binding. Um, so mediation is another way. I've been through several mediations and I will have to tell you that um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It really just depends again on what the situation is and what's being, being mediated upon. Um, sometimes we've been together and worked through mediation. Sometimes we've been sequestered. It just depends upon, again, what the situation is and um, kind of sometimes even what the level of, of tension is with between the parent and the school. Um, due process, this is an administrative law proceeding. Um, this is in front of an impartial independent hearing officer. Um, the hearing officer is the one that will make the um, decision. It um, that will be a written decision. At this point, um, I, if a parent is talking to me about um, due process, I try to make sure that they fully understand that, excuse me, this is completely out of their hands. There will be someone else that will be making the decision. It will be legally and binding and that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's again, it's out of, their, out of the parent's hands. You're, you're looking for someone else to make that decision for you. Now, before you reach that due process in front of that hearing officer, you will have a resolution session. Um, it's similar to mediation, but this only occurs um, after you have filed for due process. And it's that last opportunity to try and resolve those um, issues before you move on to that due process hearing. Um, it again is one of those things that um, you're, you, you don't have to um, go to due process. 
you can always you know try and do the mediation as much as possible um, whenever we do go to this resolution session if you have decided to move on to due process you're not required to be represented by an attorney at a due process hearing um, that is completely up to you uh, I will have to tell you that it's extremely stressful. It's extremely complex. Um, it's one of those things that, um, you know, whenever you do hire, they do know um, those paperwork, the ins and outs, the things that have to be filed, things that don't, you know, they just know the law. They know more about that. Um, but that is entirely up to you. Um, when that that due pro or that resolution session, um, you don't take your attorney into that. That is one thing that is between, you know, it's generally the special education director that that representative, and the parents. That's generally who's in there, and you're trying to hammer out one more time before you move to that due process. Um, a civil suit is a procedural safeguard that's available to um, uh, only after due process hearing has been held. Any party disagreeing with the hearing officer's decision at a due process hearing can file for that judicial review in a civil court. I just want to make sure that you understand that if, you know, no matter what you decide that you want to do, whether it be to, re to reconvene or to meet with your, with your public agency representative or a facilitated IEP or mediation or due process, any of these steps that you choose to do those are still your rights as a parent. Um, you know, you have a right to any of these. Just um, if you're moving, moving up the ladder, just remember that um, don't ever, you know, just throw it out and threaten with it. Um, just remember to try and think very thoughtfully and thoroughly through any of those decisions um, before you move to that next level. Um, because we know that things work out so much better for our kids whenever we try and all just get along. <laughs> I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. When we talk about a complaint process, um, you can file a complaint with the Indiana Department of Education if the school doesn't implement the IEP. And you can also uh, file a complaint if the school doesn't follow the Article 7 requirements. Um, you know, it's one of those things, again, I would ask a parent, you know, before you file the complaint, can we please go back to the case conference and try and resolve it? And, you know, if you decided to do that, we would try and, and work through it. Or you do have the right to file that complaint. It's, again, one of the rights as a parent. Um, there's some examples of issues that would be um, the basis for a state complaint, failure to conduct an evaluation within the required timeline failure to implement a service or services written in the IEP. What would be the best thing to do before filing a complaint? I'm always gonna say, try and go back to that case conference committee to, and try and reach your agreement there. Um, it's best to try and reserve that relationship if all possible. Um, and again, good communication is open and honest. So we wanna just try again to make sure we do this. And whenever we talk about filing that complaint, there is a, um, you just have to go to the Indiana Department of Ed and you will find the iChamp. You can open that up and you can fill out the information there to file the complaint and um, uh, um, move forward from there. Because then, this, then the complaint is going to give the school 10 days 
they're going to contact the school or do you want to move forward with the complaint or do you want us to, um, to uh, give you the 10 days to try and resolve it? And then from there, it depends upon what the, what the school has decided to do. If they're going to go ahead and move on, then the complaint investigator would, would continue on with their, in their, their investigation. If not, then you would be meeting back for case conference to try and resolve it. So ongoing services, when we talk about ongoing services, once the case conference committee has agreed upon the IEP and it has to be carried out as written, um, it has to be no later than 10 instructional days that the parents given consent to the student's um, initial IEP. If this is the very first one, they have to give that written consent. Um, if you look into your folder, you're going in your um, packet of information, you will find an overview of Article 7 and those timelines, and you can look and um, look there and see what all of those timelines and how that can be met. You're going to again have that. Uh, uh, the IEPs are going to be the first one and on, I'm sorry, I just kind of missed my train of thought here. Um, all the IEPs after the first one on the 11th day, it will go into effect. So this is, if you're having an IEP where this is just your annual case review, and so you have 10 days to come back to the school and say yes or no, or whether you agree, or you know, if there's something that you disagree with the, the, the IEP, then um, you need to make sure that you're getting back to the school as soon as possible because on the 11th day, they can implement the IEP. They no longer need your, your signature for that. Um, so you need to make sure that you're, you're um, on there before that is the 11th day. If you do challenge the implementation of the IEP by requesting a meeting or a mediation, um, this method doesn't resolve the issue to the parent's satisfaction. The school may implement the IEP on the 11th instructional day after the meeting or mediation unless the parent requests a due process hearing. Um, remember, as a parent, you are an equal member of that case conference committee meeting, and um, it must be uh, the, the meeting has to be scheduled as a mutually agreed upon time and place. So please make sure that you understand that, you know, um, if you have a job, then you, you, you have the right to be able to say, look, I'm, these are the dates that I'm available. Can we try and work this out? As a parent, some of the responsibilities that, that you need to uh, make sure that you're exercising your responsibilities, um, you need to make sure that you advocate for your student or your child um, and participate in their, in their education. Um, you want to make sure that um, you are following those responsibilities that are identified and defined in Article 7 to participate as part of the case conference committee, give written consent whenever that is needed, and to monitor those IEPs and um, make sure that they are being implemented as written. And you can do that by just you know, having conversations with your child and um, asking how things are going. Um, I'm not asking you to question your child every single day that they come home from school, but you know, um, if there's some failures on some tests, you know, are you going to the resource room? What, what does this look like? You can just you know, very casually ask those kind of questions. Um, you wanna request an IEP be amended when there is some needs if you need to. Um, as the in-source staff, you can ask us to help us with resources. Um, you can ask us to help um, 
you to understand those special education laws even even a little bit further by just giving us a call. Um, you can uh, also make sure that whenever you have those case conference reminders that are sent to you, that you do uh, make sure that you've looked at your schedule, make sure that you are able to um, make the meeting and make sure that you are serving as your child's advocate and help make those educational decisions. Um, a home yes. I've got a question. It says, what do you do if the school refuses to reevaluate after three years due to cost and you believe it would benefit your child? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I did not mean that. I did not mean to do that. Um, well, in, the, in Article 7, it does discuss that you, you have the right to reevaluate every three years. Um, I've never been told that it's due to cost. Um, you um, absolutely, I would suggest that you get back into a case conference and discuss the reasons why you feel like there needs to be a reevaluation, re and especially if there's new information that needs to be gleaned. Um, and if you were told this by somebody that was not, um, the uh, I would talk to your, your special education um, director and go over the reasons why you feel like this is being done and that you were denied this process. Um, if, it, if it comes down to that they say, nope, we're not doing it, then I would look a little bit further into why they're not doing it and what the reasonings behind that is and is it something that you need to move to mediation or due process for, okay? Kathy, would you, would you of course I would. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Just, I mean, they cannot tell you that it's due to cost because. No, that, no, no. That is, I mean, that, that's just not going to happen. I mean, they're, they're, no, that if they tell you it's due to cost, that is, I'm, I'm telling you that's not right. <laughs> and um, anytime a parent requests that evaluation, the school's response has to be in writing. Yes. It has to be in writing within 10 school days of you having made that request. Somebody may have said that verbally, but if you made that request, that should have been responded to in writing and they have to tell you the reasons for the refusal. I doubt, seriously doubt that they would write cost because that is one reason they cannot give. Right. Right. Um, and so if you disagree with those reasons, like Jill said, you have the right to go to mediation or ask to meet with the school, go to medi mediation, any of those dispute resolution options. But ask for that response in writing. I suspect somebody just told, told you that probably um, in a discussion. And so did that just kind of goes to what Jill's been saying, you know, requesting that evaluation, please do it in writing. And, yeah. and you have the right, Article 7, to have a response from the school in writing, yes or no, and then the reasons for the refusal. Um, yes. Another one, I would also state that the case conference committee that I, um, that I think she had great um, benefit of having in-source there, um, as well as her son's behavioral consultant and um, BCBA from the Autism Center, and parents can request that others attend. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And they were able to get the goals written because of having individuals attend. And, and sometimes it does help to have others there and, you know, um, just to be able to get some of those, that information shared and to make sure that they're, um, everybody's kind of keeping on the same agenda. 
if a school uses an outside hire agency, then that's probably why they said it was not cost effective, just an FYI, that's not that it's right or wrong. Yeah, I never thought about it being an outside agency. You're exactly right. Yeah, that makes sense. Still have to have that response in writing. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the home file real quick. The copies of the evaluation, you'll wanna keep those, keep copies of those IEPs. And you know, as we sit here and talk, and, and, I, and I understand that this is um, probably most of you that are on here are um, part of that foster family um, community. And it may be very difficult for you to have these things, you know, those IEPs, those report cards and all those, you know, things, but gather what you can gather and keep it for maybe the, if for some reason that child would have to move on to the next family. Um, that way that information maybe can be shared with them and given to that next family. Um, so, you know, that, that home file is just something that um, it is really kind of important to, you know, to maybe start now. Um, Leslie, thank you very much for attending and um, uh, I appreciate that. Um, so just like I said, just kind of keep that home file um, as, as good as you can and all those notes and things. Um, Jill, can I interject something uh, for that last comment? Folks, um, and I usually do this at the very beginning and at the end, the survey comes, or the link to your certificate of attendance is through the survey that's going to be coming to you via email. Question number six has, has a link that you can follow to get your certificate. So you'll need to do that survey, get that, follow that link, print your certificate. So we, we're not going to be emailing you um, the certificate, you have to use the survey form that you'll be getting soon. Um, no, question number six has the link to print the certificate. Thank you, Kathy. Mm -hmm. So three ways that you can help. Well, we've, as you see on the screen, we've really looked at various issues, you know, through this last hour and a half on facing what, what faces foster children with disabilities. And this was just a brief overview of that special education. So mm -hmm. um, look at what you can do to advocate for, your, for the children. Um, there are some very critical needs of the children and youth with disabilities in foster care, and it strongly affects the, their children's safety and well-being and opportunity to grow in permanent families. And this does lead to a meaningful and productive life. Again, I am not a foster parent. Um, I am, I'm, I'm just a parent with a child with a disability, and so I, I don't know what it would feel like to have that child come into my home, other than the fact that I know that um, I would be doing, uh, I would be so trying to find what I could do to fix them, and trying to make sure that things are in place. So I would try to be advocating for um, those educational services and supports. So these are things that, you know, we can do. We can assist in ensuring that seamless transition, especially if they're older children in that foster care. Become an advocate. Advocacy is about working um, with people. Um, this, an advocate effectively uses and develops an understanding of special education law. And we know that our children's rights are and how to resolve disagreements with schools. And again, um, Whatever we can do at InSource, if you have a foster child with special needs, you can meet with the special education teacher, get a copy of the IEP, 
you, you're more than welcome to call in-source, the, the staff person that's in your area, and ask them questions and see what we can do to help with any of those questions. Watch those training classes online um, that we have at InSource. Um, if there's something that doesn't seem right, then please ask and you know try and um, find out maybe what's going on. Some of the community resources that we have is that Indiana Disability Rights. Um, it would be InSource, the ARC of Indiana. There is the About Special Kids. These are you know four places that you could go and find more information and more of those community um, resources. Real quickly, we do have a parent support volunteering training program. If you would be interested in um, learning a little bit more about helping other uh, parents in your area, we have ongoing training and support, regular newsletters and webinars. And if there's anything that you need from us, you can contact us at our 800 number or you can contact us at insource at insource.org. This does conclude our, conclude our webinar on advocating for the foster child with special needs. I would just like to say thank you to each one of the foster parents out there, to those um, um, case managers, to all of that support staff. Just thank you from the bottom of my heart to know that um, it, it's a tough job, I know, being a parent. It's even a tougher job, I'm sure, being a foster parent. And um, so just thank you. I, I do appreciate that. Kathy, I'll leave it up to you. Okay, just that quick reminder that we did at the beginning um, that you will be receiving an email with a, a survey, an evaluation of sorts. Question number six allows you to um, print your certificate. Certificates are, are designed, in, and we've tried to be very clear in the advertising and in the information we've been sharing. It's great if two of you share a, a computer, but you both need to register in your own name, um, even if you're sharing the same email address, which sometimes happens, but you both need to register, and then you're both entitled to uh, a certificate. Um, so again, I just can't stress that enough. I, I don't care how many people share a computer, as long as each and every one registers, because that's just part of the, the program requirement. And so, Watch for that survey and please take it. We look forward to your feedback. Use that link to um, print your certificate. And remember, oh, thank you. Thanks for all the compliments, folks. Uh, remember, two weeks from today, we'll have Melaine Gant from the Department of Child Services. She'll be talking about that um, point of contact at schools. And we'll have Jeff Whitman from the Indiana Department of Education uh, talking about the, that collaboration that's now required under federal, federal law and what they're doing together in schools and DOE or, 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 and DCS, excuse me, are working well together to get better outcomes for our kids. So thank you so much for joining us and stay healthy and stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone.